welcome to the Album Adventure Show with Wally and Shanaz. My name is Shanaz. On the other end of the other microphone is Wally. This is our third episode. Very excited to be here to talk about what we're going to talk about. If you haven't heard our previous episodes, we put our teeth into the Beatles' Abbey Road. And we also did Nirvana. Never mind. So we're going for the big albums up front. And this third album that we're going to talk about today is also very, very big in very, very different ways. Wally, can you please update everyone about why we're doing this and what the, I guess, subject matter is every week that we talk about? We've really uh, gone obscure this week and we're going to do Bad Out of Hell by Meatloaf, one of my all-time favorite albums. Actually, doing a little bit of research for the show, I found it is actually the top-selling album all-time in Australia, which is a little bit surprising, but maybe not if you're a little bit older than us. It was a pretty big thing around that time. And I guess the idea of this is really to try to get people to listen to an album that maybe they haven't heard before or maybe something that they've heard a long time ago and just want to get back into. And I guess we're going to try and jump around a little bit. We will go a little bit more obscure than the first three albums that we're going to have gone through but this one probably well it's certainly not obscure to people our age but maybe people a little bit younger than us mightn't even know who meatloaf is that's correct and we'll get to that and you're right we will get a little bit more obscure the more we go along but we thought we'd start with the big stuff and in this example in this episode this is one of your albums that you brought to the party now you and i have spent a lot of time in our work life talking about meatloaf and talking about things like this album but as you were correct in suggesting bringing this album to the podcast it's not one that i have wrapped my head around before certainly know different songs quite well but never really listened from start to finish i don't think so very good and a lot of fun for me to do that over the past few weeks meatloaf bat out of hell should point out also wally for people going what do you mean you talk about it at work we work together. We've worked together for almost 20 years, having a lot of fun doing what we do in our workplace. And occasionally we get a bit of time to talk about rock and roll. Hence the podcast. Wally, you said it's the biggest selling album of all time. What year did it come out? 1977? Definitely late 70s. If I thought about it, I'd say this is the album that I've listened through from start to finish more than any other. Wow. I think it was even my older brother, Matthew, or my sister's album had it. I always remember the album cover. It always stood out when you were flicking through all of the records when I'd be trying to find something to listen to. This was always the one that you'd, you'd come to and stop at. It's a very distinctive album cover. It's got a guy riding like a jet-powered motorbike, bursting out of a cemetery with a huge bat behind him on the big album, the big orange cover. I guess when this came out, it was only on LP, so it was. I guess that was a real selling point for the album that people would go be flicking through records in a record store and go, whoa, what's this? I always found when I was... Oh, pretty young, I think, when I would have first started listening to this. As you say, it came, came out in 77, so I was born in 76. I reckon by the time I was three or four, if I wasn't putting this on myself, I may have been asking either my mum or dad or one of my brothers to put this album on for me. And we always like to, to joke about at work about songs that take themselves too seriously. And I think this is an album that it's their songs that they sound like they take themselves too seriously, but I think I definitely think it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and I don't know if I've always picked up on that, but the re-listening to it now like he just some of the songs just like it's hilarious it's not meant to it's not a comedy album by any means it's definitely a rock album a rock opera album i think it's fair to say and we'll go into why it is a bit of a rock opera i've always loved this and even listening through it the three or four times before we uh recorded today it's uh I, I still love it every time every listen through just looking at the album cover now and it's a pretty bizarre looking bat what's going on with those wings i think we said last time that uh Kurt Cobain was a very complex dude. I think Jim Steinman's also a very complex dude in a, a different way. I think he designed this cover. He didn't draw it, but I'm pretty sure the concept was his idea of the guy on the, the jet-powered motorbike bursting out of the cemetery. But, uh, yeah, if you, if you haven't seen the cover, uh, Google it and have a look because it is – I'm pretty sure I read somewhere it's in the top – of was voted in a magazine's top 100 uh, album covers of all time. Mm-hmm. It's certainly uh, unmistakable. Now, you mentioned Jim Steinman. And a lot of people are like, is that Meatloaf? But that's not Meatloaf. Jim Steinman is, I guess, the creator behind Meatloaf and this album. Do you want to elaborate more on his role, not so much in his whole career, but just 
to this point with this album? Yeah, I think people probably know when you get a duo, a famous duo of like songwriter and artist skating, people all know about Elton John and Bernie Taupin. I think that's a very famous where Bernie writes the lyrics and Elton writes the music. Meatloaf and Jim Steinman are a little bit different, whereas most of Meatloaf's albums are pretty much Jim Steinman's concept. Uh, Bad Out of Hell was kicking around for a long time. For whatever reason, Jim Steinman's a bit obsessed with Peter Pan and Neverland. And if you listen to, if you go, <laughs> I don't know why, but if you go through even the album that came out after this, but then reading about the concepts for this, that Basically, the idea was he wanted to write a musical about a modern Peter Pan, this rock epic, rock opera. He had a few songs written for that, and he was basically touring with a, a theatre company that had Meatloaf was in it, and I sort of I guess they kicked around the songs, and Meatloaf sort of loved a couple of the songs, and they thought they had some hits there, and they actually trying to get this album made was a bit of a, a journey for them. I think they sort of they wrote all the they had the three songs that they were going to do. They wrote the few extras for the album, and then they had to shop it around to different music executives and whatnot to try and get it published. And a, a couple of actually sort of laughed them out of the door. There's one story about a music executive asked Jim Steinman, did he know anything about writing rock and roll songs? And that he had no idea what he's doing and you couldn't structure songs like this and he needed to go and learn. It was definitely a, a journey to get the album made, but it's, yeah, it was, it was kicking around for a long time. But as I said, Jim Steinman, another complex dude, this obsession with Peter Pan, there's a bit of it on this album, but yeah, like I said, if you go through some more albums or just more songs that he wrote for other people, you end up with all these Jim Steinman themes. You get the, what I like to call the Jim Steinman piano, which we'll hear as soon as the album opens. You have the Jim Steinman backing vocals, which is, again, it's another thing you always hear in these songs. There's a sort of like an orchestral, I guess an angelic choir. I think it's fair to say he's sort of going for this sound of the, he always has in the background of his songs. And then there's all these lyrics that he always goes back to. He loves the moon and the sun. He loves all these similes about like knives and sparks and Jim Steinman's his whole thing. It's definitely, it's not a, you listen to this one album and it's like, I don't think it's the type of thing if you haven't heard it before, you'd listen to it once and go, yeah, that's awesome. You have to listen to it and start to pick up on the lyrics and where he's being funny and then the complexity of the song structure and you'll get to a point of a song and you think this song's over and it isn't. It just goes into the next bit of the song and one of a kind, I think it's fair to say. And he was just lucky enough that he had all these songs in his head and wanted to, wanted to get them out to the world. And he just happened to be touring with this dude. I think it's Marvin Lee a day. Who's that's meatloaf's real name. And the first time that he heard his voice, he's just like, man, this guy's amazing. And I need to work with him. And bad out of hell came from that meatloaf's first album. And then a lot of albums afterwards. And I'm very glad that they met. As a spoiler, it took me quite a while to get into this album because of what you just said. The structure of the songs, the length of the songs, the mood, and it's not an easy listen in the background. You need to really old school, get the vinyl out, put it on and off. I'm not saying you can't listen to it on Spotify like I did, but it was meant to listen to as an album. There are a few big songs which people will know as hits, but as an album, I found it quite difficult to listen to. It doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it, and we'll get to that towards the end of the episode. And I did end up enjoying it quite a lot. But the first few listens, I really struggled as an overall album to kind of, I guess, understand the deeper meaning. I understood the, the initial layers of what he was singing about and the moods he was going for and the vibe and everything. But it takes a few listens, and there's nothing wrong with that. that that's actually really great art. If it's, if it's something you need to sort of sink your teeth into and eventually, I mean, it became the biggest selling album of all time in Australia. So obviously a lot of people like it. Uh, the other thing I was going to mention while was one of my favorite things in life is Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. And a couple of the members actually play on this album. And the piano you're talking about is very E Street Band. And when I say E Street Band, I'm talking about the first three albums and probably in particular Born to Run, which came out two years before this. And Bruce was basically doing his own rock operas. If you listen to Jungle Land, if you listen to any of those songs off that album, even Born to Run in a sort of four-minute version, it's a rock opera. And I feel like they were on the same wavelength. I mean, subject matter quite different. But even Bruce was singing about things happening in New Jersey that were a little bit make-believe, a little bit made up, you know, switchblade knives and all that sort of stuff. The imagery matches up a little bit, which I found fascinating. Just a nice little tidbit for me and whoever else likes the E Street Band that uh, Max Weinberg and I believe Roy Bitten played on this album. 
It was funny, Shaz, when you told me that. I think early on when you started listening, you said, is this sound like Bruce Springsteen to you? And I'm not a huge Springsteen fan. So I, I did a bit of read. It definitely sounds like Born to Run. Once you've, once you've heard that comparison, it's like, you know what, this does sound like Born <laughs> to Run, a lot like Born to Run. And so I had a look and was trying to see, does this sound or has he taken anything from Bruce Springsteen? Now, the guy that produced the album, Todd Rundgren, when they got him on board to produce it, he was listening to the songs. He actually thought it was a spoof of Springsteen. He's like, wow, this is, okay. and he said to himself, I, I, ha- I have to make this album. It's hilarious. You're just doing a spoof of Bruce Springsteen. And Jim Stone was like, hey, hang on. I'm not doing that. I think he said Bruce was a, an inspiration, I think, for the album. So you picked up on that and you told me straight away. And then I just started reading. You go down the, the wiki rabbit hole. Mm. Todd Rudgren, yeah, this sounds like Bruce. And it was like, well, good work, Shnaz. You picked up on that. So I actually wasn't aware that Todd Rudgren did uh, produce this album until right this very moment. Well, there you go. He's the, he's the producer. And as we will talk about in the first song, when you uh, wanted to talk about the motorbike sound, that uh, he had a big part to play in that. First song is the title track. This is a little bit of Bat Out of Hell. So bright, there's evil in the hand, there's thunder in the sky, and a killer's on the bloodshot streets. Going down in the tunnel where the deadly arise, I know I swear I saw a young boy down in the cover, he was stopping the foam in the heat. All right, welcome back. That was the title track, Bat Out of Hell, at least a little bit of it, while because it does go for about eight minutes. Out of all the songs, Wally, this is the one that blew me away the most. It, again, it took a few spins for me to get it. And I remember messaging you and I said, I can now understand what's going on here. And and about two minutes into the song, they go from this sort of jam to the melody hook instrumentally. And it just my mind was blown. I was like, okay, I'm ready for this. And I think this song, I mean, you could say it about a few, but this song really, for me, defines Meatloaf. This is Meatloaf 101 and also at his best. Yeah, definitely. This is, it's Meatloaf Steinman 101, this song. It's got Meatloaf's amazing vocals. It's got Steinman's bizarre, long, cryptic, horny emo lyrics. Oh, we'll get to that. They didn't pull any punches. It, it's got to be some kind of record that this is meat. This is Meatloaf's first album, putting out your first album, your first song. Number one, it goes for eight minutes. Number two, you don't sing for two minutes. It's got two minutes of piano and guitar and whatnot, like you say, a jam at the start. Meatloaf comes in after two minutes with his massive vocals to say this is the. I don't know if it's the best song on the album, but yeah, I think you're right in saying it's a song that best sums up. Meatloaf and his partnership with Jim Steinman. It's got a, it's got a little bit of everything I was talking about before. It's got the Steinman piano. It's got the backing vocals. Yeah, the imagery of like, yeah, teenage angst, the knives, the it's all happening. And, and the whole sort of gothic vampire bat stuff. So the opening lyrics of the sirens are screaming, the fires are howling. Way down in the valley tonight, there's a man in the shadows with a gun in his eye and a blade shining oh so bright. But then you sort of delve down a bit, a bit further. And he gets to the romantic side of Meatloaf, which a lot of people would know. It's maybe the only thing in this whole wide world that's pure, good, and right. And and a lot of the vocals, they have that yearning, that angst. And like you hinted at, there's a lot of uh, teenage lust in there. But also there's the other side of that. I think you can hear the love and romance. And you hear it in, what, 20 years later when he does Do Anything for Love. Like, that's just so painfully like romantic over the top like i love it but it's so bombastic and you get a lot of this on this album we'll get to that i don't know if it's like jim versus meat but it's just that struggle between almost his lower part of his body and his top half of his body if you follow yeah he's a heart versus penis definitely a hapless romantic jim there's a lot of as you said there's a lot of angst there's a lot of love there's a lot of frustration i think is a a a fair enough one to come out of this. I was reading about this. The actual, this is Steinman wanted to write 
there was a bit of a thing, I guess, going in the the fifties and sixties about car crash songs. Right. When people started, when the road tolls started to go a bit crazy, there's a song like, "What's the one that Pearl Jam covered?" The uh, yeah, where or where can my baby the where be? or where can yeah. my baby be? Yeah, that song. Well, that's that's type of car crash song. And this is a a motorbike crash song. I guess it's not a car crash song, but yeah, it has that theme of the teenage love affair that he only lives with this woman and he's got to go somewhere. And I think I've always loved the the end of it's always been my favorite. The bit the tolling of the bell song when he's he's lying at the bottom of the pit in the blazing sun, torn and twisted at the foot of the boarding bike, and then Meatloaf just hits him with, I think somewhere somebody must be talking to me. Such a it's a great line and his his delivery of the the lyric is just it's really top notch. And please listen to it a few times. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really is a great album and it's the the real the Wagner rock opera all summed up in eight minutes. And, uh, yeah, if you can get through the first song and have a couple of listens and like it, I think you are going to like the rest of the album. Yeah, I mean, you need to open your mind a little bit to the times. I mean, Queen was hanging around and doing their thing in a less kind of vampire bat, gothic way or whatever. But it was <laughs> the time, almost prog rock, you would say, without being prog rock. But somehow these bands exploded, all these artists exploded and became household names with these eight-minute operas. The epic was the thing, wasn't it? It was all, well, it became, let's put out yeah. our epic song. Like, yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody is the epic song. Even Led Zeppelin or whatever, you know, like it. it Stairway to Heaven's, yeah. a, what's that, like an eight or nine-minute song? Mm. I think it is fair to say, what they were going for with this is the epic track, and it's, yeah, it comes off. Whether they pull it off or not in this stage, it's probably fair to say it's it's fairly dated. Yes. Like, it's definitely of its time. It's definitely a 70s album. Like, you listen to that, like, there's no confusion as to, you know what, this album came out in the late 70s. I don't think there's any getting away from that. But it's, I don't think it, not not necessarily in the sound. It's not a, it doesn't have like that, it doesn't sound old. Like, the production of it doesn't sound like a, some songs you you put them on and straight away you hear them coming and you go, whoa, this is, this is an old song. They don't sound like old songs, but I think the way that the songs Put together and yeah, the, lyrically, the this the, the lyrics and this verse going into this bit, into this bridge, into this. It's like yeah, it's a very the the epic seventies, the over the top ballad, well planted in that area. And we should point out, if you don't know, there's only seven songs on this album, so we're not going to be sitting here talking about twenty songs or making you go listen to twenty songs that go for ten minutes. There's only seven songs. Uh, they get a lot out of those seven songs. The next one we're going to go to is one you may know as well, and it is called "You Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth." When you've only got seven songs on an album, Wally, a bunch of them are going to be singles. I believe that was a single called You Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth. I would dare say one of the more conventional songs on the album, a pretty straight rock song. It does have an interesting start, which we have not included on this episode, and that is some spoken word from Jim Steinman, but he's quoting what is he quoting? I'm pretty sure it's from the, the, the musical that never got made, Neverland. So it was two of the characters talking to each other. Yeah, it, it was from the from the musical Neverland. It's Jim Steinman doing this. As you say, it's a straightforward rock song. It was maybe too straightforward. So let's put something a little bit weird on the front of it just to make sure it fits in on the album. Is that a is that a musical play that he wrote? That was the one that he was. That was where the album came from. It was from from Neverland. They were doing the doing the musical, and this is where the idea came from. And I guess he had this bit of dialogue written. He sort of thought it went with the the theme of the song, so he's chucked it on there and we get the, the Steinman opening, the spoken word, and then this one you get a few more of the Steinman things we were saying about. You definitely get the Steinman backing vocals in this with the orchestral oohs and ahs in the background. <laughs> yeah. I love that one. 
this is the first of the being on the beach. Yep. Now, Steinman had this thing about making out on the beach. There's a few songs. There's another one on this album that we get into at the end of the album. But it is going to lead into, because it isn't part of this album, but I'm going to talk about it because, as you know, we've brought this up before. Our listeners won't know. After Bad Out of Hell, Steinman made an album on his own called Bad for Good. It was basically Bad Out of Two that Meatloaf couldn't perform. But on that, he's got this whole song about making out on the beach and it has the greatest line ever written as far as I'm concerned by a songwriter. How he got it on an album, I don't know. It's got this, a lot of the same imagery as this song. It's got the moon shining up above, the the getting hot and heavy down on the sand. But the line in this song that I really love, it surfs up and so am I. <laughs> it's the, the greatest ever. Now, he, he does love a boner line, and there is a great boner line on this album as well. We'll get to that, yeah. That's the best one ever written. I'm sure these two songs came from the same place, but... Like you say, it is a pretty standard rock song. Standard rock song with Jim Steinman's, like we say, horny emo thrown in over the top of it. And I'm pretty sure this is Meatloaf's biggest selling single. Yeah, and and I think people would know the sort of live music video that goes with it. And it's uh, just one of those Meatloaf classics. I think everyone who is aware of him and this album and this song have sung along to the chorus. You know, it's a very catchy chorus, which is obviously a very important thing in music no matter whether it's from the 50s or 2023, if you've got a catchy chorus, you're halfway there. I think that's important to note with Meatloaf, as bombastic as rock opera as it all is, he still has the key elements of really good songwriting. And there'll be some coming up, which is just unbelievable, in my opinion. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm sure that he must be one of the most played artists still to this day currently, because there is so many classic rock stations out there uh, around the world. So... Uh, that was, you took the words right out of my mouth. You got any thoughts on that song? Any more thoughts, Wall? Or I do like that one, but it's it's not in my favourites on the album. There's only seven songs, so there's not going to be many favourites. Next up, I would dare say we have the first of the true ballads that Meatloaf gave to the world, and this is a song called Heaven Can Wait. So that was Heaven Can Wait and a, a true ballad, as I said before, and and a pretty good song. Uh, I wasn't overly aware of this song, Wally. I know you thought it would be my go-to, and I, I don't mind it. It's, it's, it's good. It's good, nice and mushy. I don't want to die because I'm in love with this woman. So, yeah, heaven. I'm already in heaven. I'm with this lady. Mm. I'm going to stay here on earth. You can just leave me down here. I'm, spoiler alert for at the end of the album when we give our skip song. This is probably my skip song on the album. <laughs> Out of seven, you have to pick one. It's uh, Again, I'm not going to say it's a bad song. Growing up and when you're listening, going through this song, like when you're young, you get to this song, oh, this song's a bit soppy, I don't really like it. And so it was always the song that if I was going to, it's hard to skip on a record, maybe when I was listening on my tape, which I did have the tape of this album <laughs> played a lot, that you'd maybe fast forward through this one to get to the the uh, more preferred songs. But yeah, as you say, it's a, a perfectly serviceable ballad. Meatloaf singing on it's really good, showing his uh, his softer side that he can uh, carry these. I guess a slower, quieter song. I think it's fair to say it's probably the quietest song on the album. I think that's uh, fair enough to say. But uh, it's a little bit of a change in pace from the uh, next song on the album. It's funny you mention skipping songs on vinyl. It's something I still don't like doing for fear of scratching the record. <laughs> you got to be so gentle with it. I was always told by my, especially my dad with his Beatles records about, yeah, use the little controller thing to lift the needle up. And now people have no idea what we're talking about. When you used to have the little lever on the the arm that had the needle and the stylus on it, you'd have to lift it up. He's never just grabbed the stylus, never grabbed the end of the arm. Use the little thing to put it up, turn it around, put it back down. It's a, It was a terrifying thing, I think, when you had albums that yeah. it was a, Oh, God, don't scratch the album. It'll be, be ruined forever. <laughs> so, Band of Angels, I saw the word paradise. Heaven can wait, obviously. Altars shine. There is that almost religious 
imagery, which is never that far for me from Meatloaf's at least deeper songs. And he never really, I don't think, gets to that point of mentioning anything or anyone that might be alluding to any kind of religion. But there is that, I think, hanging over it a lot. And it goes with all the imagery that Steinman projects. What you're saying is Creed could have covered this song, Schnaz, and it'd be perfectly serviceable. Well, <laughs> Creed not album. quite, not quite, <laughs> because I understand that he's saying heaven is, you know, with his lady friend, but good song. We might leave it at that, but if you like your ballads, one of two you might be going to. Uh, so next up, we have All Revved Up With No Place To Go. I realized that Jim Steinman wrote a lot about teenage angst and lust, as I keep saying. I didn't think that this song was anything else except about, you know, going out on a Saturday night, but it's obviously uh, about a young person who is all revved up with nowhere to go. And there's lots of imagery here that paints, I guess you would say, suburban America or uh, regional America almost. In the 70s. Could it be the first incel song ever written, Schnaz? I don't know. Could be very early on. Could be very early on that he's he's a football star. It's got the NFL reference in there that he's a varsity tackle and a hell of a block. He's a guitar player. Mm. He can make the Kenyans mm. rock. All revved up with no place to go. You, you can use your imagination with that. <laughs> but you know what, Wally? Like all lyrics, they're subjective. So if someone wants to think it's about something else, that's more than fine. And for all we know, it could be. This is our interpretation of it. But it does paint a picture pretty good. I noticed uh, there is a bit of saxophone on the track. And again, that could be a Springsteen influence given Clarence Clemens' role in the E Street Band. It could be a 70s thing as well. I'm not suggesting it just ripping off anyone, let alone Bruce. But uh, nice to hear a bit of saxophone in there. This song for me, while is probably in some ways one of the weaker tracks it's still good you can listen to it you can hum along it reminds me of how i feel like my relationship which we'll get to at some point no doubt my relationship with the song bad medicine by bon jovi off new jersey and new jersey for me is one of my favorite albums and bad medicine is one of their biggest hits but i really i'm not a huge is that a hint for a future album i'm not a huge fan (laughs) of that song I, i don't mind it but I don't think it should be a top 10 hit and one of their biggest hits. I, I just think it's 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 a novelty kind of fun song. It sounds like it was written pretty quick, and this song reminds me of that. I think it's one of the songs they had. I think this was one of the ones from the musical that they had before the album. So it was called Formation of the Pack. <laughs> I think it was something like that. So it was obviously, a, yeah, if he's putting his gang together in the musical at some stage, a bit of a change in pace from the song before, especially at the end of the song when it goes into the double time. Uh, when he's belting out the end, and this was the end, the end of the first side of the album. So this was the sort of the bit of the outro coming to the the side two of the album. But yeah, I've always liked this one. As you say, I don't think it's one of the the greatest songs on the album. It's definitely again, it's a very Steinman meatloaf song with the like we said, the imagery about the the teenage angst and whatnot. But it's uh, probably the most rocking track on the album. A bit like the bit of rock and roll, the real. Mm. They're getting into it and the guitar and, like you say, the sax and the – not maybe not the heaviest song, certainly not heavy, but just a, the most rock and roll song on the album, I think. Maybe. I think what really saves it for me is his delivery in the vocal and particularly in the chorus. Like the melody, the way he sings the melody is really cool. It's very, very tasteful. He certainly had some pipes on him, the old meat. Yeah, but I guess even in this instance I'm saying he sort of controls it more and it's almost like a classic kind of melody comes out of nowhere and – really takes the chorus to a place I want it to go, as opposed to just being a bit sort of meat and potatoes, which I think it is until a certain point. And he changes the melody a little bit. I like the song. Definitely not one of the stronger ones on there. I do like the imagery. I think it's kind of cool. And it's almost like 
here's another spoiler. I can't stand Greece and all that kind of imagery about yeah, the movie, the the songs. Like I really just and it wasn't my era. It's nothing to do with my life. I, I get that I don't relate to it or whatever. But this for me is almost like the jock version of that. And I, as you know, can probably relate more to jock stuff, not because I'm a jock, but because I like things that jocks do and play. So I think the lyrics, whilst a little bit naff in some places, I don't mind the lyrics actually out of... It kind of makes sense, though. If it was one of the songs from the musical, that if you're drawing the thing to Greece, that it's, it does sound like a song that you could see, yeah, the main dude in a musical, this is like the... The end of Act whatever, well, on the albums, the end of Act One, that he's uh he's ready to to bust out and whatnot. So yeah, I guess that uh imagery you definitely get that imagery from it. Instead of fifties Greece or late <laughs> when was Greece set? Fifties? You so, probably yeah. don't know, you probably never watched well, it. Well not have but, I think late fifties yeah. or early sixties. This is probably yeah, late seventies. It's the go Greece lightning of Bad Out of Hell. <sighs> oh, that's very well said. Well, that could be like the uh <laughs> The thing we put up on the socials, that'll be the line, the hit, the, the log line. It's the go Greece. <laughs> so out of that, we go to side two and a song, which actually in all sincerity means a lot to me. And we'll get to why maybe after we listen to some of it. This is two out of three ain't bad. All right, that was two out of three and bad. I got the giggles because Wally's singing in between these spaces here and he's got a very beautiful voice. It's a song I really love. I don't know if it's one of my favorite songs of all time, but it's a song I really love. I've loved this song for a long time. I, I did know it through, I guess, seeing the video clip throughout the years, not when it was released because we were both spring chickens then, but in the 80s and 90s, you'd see the song a lot on you know, video hits and rage and whatever it was that you used to watch. And it was a song that really spoke to me. The reason I really got into it while was uh, I used to listen to equivalent of like what love song dedications became. And I think it was on 2WS originally. They would play this song. Not that guy that used to talk like this, Sam, about her. This one's going out to uh, Jenny in America. Yeah, from from (laughs) Frank, you know, in Lincoln. (laughs) We only pick on those two suburbs because they're great suburbs. Since hearing that on that on those sort of shows most nights, I was like, oh, this song's amazing. I really grew to love it. For people out there who don't know, I play a bit of music on the side, and it's a song that I've always covered in my bedroom. But for whatever reason, while I only ever started singing the second half of the song, which is from where he says there's only one girl I'll ever love. So I guess the last quarter maybe even. Mm-hmm. I just love yep. that delivery and we'll get into that. But a really great ballad. I love the fact that this song is a little bit more relatable to humans all around the world. It's not so much about falling in love with a girl in a cemetery on a Friday night when there's lightning coming down. <laughs> and, you know what I mean? This is just a song about a guy and a girl or, hey, it's 2023, however you want to do it. Girl, girl, guy, guy. You know what I mean? It's about a couple and there's heartbreak and there's rejection and there's yearning to get back and all these sorts of great emotions that everyone goes through at least once in their life. And I think it's really done well. I think his vocal completely captures the emotion. I think lyrically, Steinman is holding back in a really good way. Like, so he mentions, you know, a stormy night. So I can live with that. 
but he doesn't elaborate on that. It's very reserved Steinman imagery. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, there's a, a line that I quoted to you the other day at work. There ain't no Coupe de Ville hiding at the bottom of a Cracker Jack box. Like, <laughs> it sounds terrible, and it's probably not a strong part of the song, but there's so much strength in the song and the lyrics that he can get away with it, and that's him sort of, I guess, throwing in something, going, hey, guys, great lyric here. It's going to yeah. jazz it up a little bit, which I don't know if it does or not. But Meatloaf's vocals really carry the bridge, though. I think that's the – Sure. He's got that great sort of steps up. He's hitting the – the upper range of his register, but I think Steinman couldn't write a whole song without putting in one very Steinman lyric, and I think that is the Coupe de Ville in the Cracker Jet box. Yep. I think this one, it's interesting that you say that it's the most accessible of the songs on the album. I think like the most mainstream, I think that's fair to say. You could like this one definitely say it's a very mainstream song. I was reading, it's, it was actually written as a response to an actress asked Jim Steinman, her name was Mimi Kennedy, could you write a simple song like Elvis Presley's I Want You, I Need You, I Love You? <laughs> so that was so that's where it came from. That she said, how, do, how about you write a song like this? And that's where he's got the... That's clever. Yeah, the I Want You, I Need You, but I'm Never Gonna Love You, two out of three ain't bad. So that was the wow. the story of it. But yeah, it's interesting that, yeah, can't you just write a simple song? Yeah, sure I can, but then had to be clever around the song that he based it off too. It's a pretty sad song. I, I, you know, those sort of songs speak to me and, and I think this is kind of timeless. I, I think that if I was listening to music in 1977, I would have gone, oh, that's a that's a real uh, heartbreaker. And in 2023, I can still confidently say that. Definitely, and we'll get to it at the end of the show, the episode, but definitely one of my favorites. But that is very biased because it's always been one of my favorites. We've spoken before, Schnaz, about your songwriting, how you definitely like writing songs on cloudy, rainy days. <laughs> yeah. This seems to me like it was a song that was written on a rainy day. It's def- definitely a rainy day song. <laughs> Next up, we have the very elaborate Paradise by the Dashboard Light. That was just some of Paradise by the Dashboard Light by Meatloaf, the second last song on his uh, record-breaking Bat Out of Hell album, which we're talking about here on Album Adventures with Wally and Chinaz. I've got to say, well, that's probably the most rock opera I think that this album gets. It's not necessarily what I think is the best rock opera on the album, but it's pretty out there musically. Uh, it's jumping all over the place. I know there's a lot of Method to the Madness, which I respect. Can you give me any insight into what the heck this song's about? I think, Schnaz, it's a warning to uh, amorous young men about thinking with their penis and not their <laughs> their brain. Right. When you run through the whole song, they're parking by the lake, they're out there, they're happy, they're getting it on. The guy's trying to get to third base. He gets there, I think, and then there's a bit of a baseball commentary, which is a bit of a... A metaphor for what's going on in the car, and then because we get the the stop right there, we go no further and tell me that you love me forever. Mm-hmm. They go back and forth. The guy doesn't want to do that, but then of course the uh, everything gets the better of him, and he vows that he will love her forever. Oh. But now he's praying for the end of time. <laughs> so they could not be. Is that the biggest twist? Now we have spoken about this before. <laughs> it's not many rock and roll songs you get that have a twist ending. There's a few, but not many. The one that I thought of straight away was Evie by Stevie Wright, which has got probably the the biggest twist ending of all time in that that Evie dies in childbirth. And it's like, whoa, what the hell's happening in this song? I'll never break my promise or forget my vow, but God only knows what I can do right now. I'm praying for the end of time. It's all that I can do. Praying for the end of time so I can end my time with you. Exclamation mark. (laughs) We definitely get a jump into the future. Wow. And then I think it's got in the background, it was long ago and it was far away and it was so much better than it is today. It's a Steinman unhinged, I think it's fair to, fair to call this one. That it's, It starts off with horny teenager. It's definitely horny teenager. They're barely 17. They're barely dressed. They're out parking. 
she's got him all revved up with no place to go. <laughs> it's fair to say. The the twist in the song kind of makes me sad, but not like in a sad way. <laughs> in a kind of shaking my head at this gentleman and I don't know, like, is it really that bad? Like, maybe just don't go, go through with what you're going to do to get to the vow. Like, maybe just, you know, as the guy says, you're at third base and let's stop because now he wants the end of time. <laughs> it's very grim, very grim. It's very heavy. It's very heavy. A very heavy song with some baseball commentary in the middle of it, which is, again... <laughs> now, we, we should point out that there is a few sound bites that are that are genuine but they're 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 sound samples that you may not normally hear on a rock and roll record or any record really and in this instance there's a baseball uh, audio reference in the opening track while bad out of hell there's a replication of a motorbike revving its engine what what can you tell me about that well, when you asked me about this, it's one of the things you said, what's wrong with the motorbike? It sounds like the wussiest motorbike yeah. ever made. I said, that's Todd Rundgren making that sound with his guitar. Which is cool. Which was, I think there was this, this, this whole argument about Steinman wanted to, hey, go and get a motorbike. This needs a motorbike in it. And Todd Rundgren basically said, hey, man, I can make that sound with my guitar. And went on to, to make the motorbike sound. And you've got that in Bad Out of Hell. You've got the baseball commentary in this one. There's a, a lot going on in Seven Okay, I did seven songs. The Neverland quote at the start of uh, took the words right out of my mouth. Like there is a bit more going on than just four four drums, bass, and vocal kind of thing, which is which is cool. Like it's that was the time, and it makes it a pretty out there record. And this song we're just talking about is it's pretty out there. <laughs> it's pretty. I thought you liked this one, Stas. It's definitely. It's not your. Uh, yeah, it's not a. It's certainly not a ballad. I like the the uh, the song title with the word dashboard. It reminds me of you know. I guess almost. It doesn't have to be like Americana kind of vibes, but when I hear the word dashboard, I kind of think of an American talking about their car and whatever else. Different references, like you know, one of my favorite bands, Dashboard Confessional. But like, just it's such an American term, I think, and I may be wrong. Like maybe it's a, a worldwide thing. Maybe we say it in Australia. I don't know, but for me, it represents Americana for some reason. The dash. It's just such a funny way to write the lyric that I, I can see paradise by the dashboard line. Well, yeah. <laughs> just give, as you sure say, the imagery of a big American, like a Cadillac or Ooh. something, maybe a Coupe de Ville with the bench seat at the Ooh. front. They're out by the lake. There's no lights around. There's only, they've got the radio on. See his lady friend in a state of undress. <laughs> and the only light he's got in the car is the dashboard. Probably a stormy it's, night uh, as well. Yes, I def- he definitely had a knack for <laughs> the uh, painting a picture. As you say, he loves the storm. The only thing that's missing from these songs is that they're actually in the car and they're not on the sand with waves crashing in the moon. <laughs> I think that's all that's missing. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's definitely got some um, particular, I'm not going to say peculiar, but particular tastes in how he likes things to be in his mind. And dare I say, I don't know, in real life, I don't know how much real life there is to this, but we're making light a little bit, but we both have huge respect for what they've done. They've created this great masterpiece and... And there's certainly more albums out there that which they've created. And a lot of it is to do with this imagery. We're talking about two out of three are bad before. And one of the words that really rings out to me whenever I think of that song is on a stormy night. So I've got the Steinman in me now. It's like the stormy <laughs> night, you know. As I said, I don't think he's trying to be funny. I don't, no. I don't think any of it's not written as a comedy, no. but I think it's definitely written as, you've said a couple of times, it's like the graveyard, the bats, the... yeah. He has a palette of words that he likes to draw from. Like I said at the start, yeah, he has the, the Stormy Night. He has the, on his other album and a few of his other songs is he likes the the sparking wire or the or the fire or setting something on fire. Yeah. And the yeah, the, the paradise has got the, yeah, we're glowing like the metal on the edge of an ice. Like, what the hell? Where does that even come from? Like, he's got these. I mean, maybe he was ahead of his time or maybe it was the time and I'm not aware of it, but in the 80s and I guess, early 90s, we had the hard rock imagery, which we've spoken about on the show before, and particularly glam rock and that kind of thing. And he was almost ahead of his time lyrically with that because a lot of those bands would sing about just ridiculous imagery that you would never think about, but it had this uh, imagery that matched their way they dressed and the way their stage show was and everything was dark and gloomy and stormy and I'm singing to you from a cemetery and 
everything was kind of dark and, you know, it was almost like <laughs> horror, you know, horror films were becoming quite popular around that time. And, you know, you'd get your Jasons and your Freddies and those people coming along. And it all kind of matches for me, although I'm sure Jim and Meatloaf would be more into your Vincent Price kind of films or whatever. But yeah, it all matches that kind of imagery for me looking back. You could put some of these songs in Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Like they're not particularly scary, but the imagery kind of suits. He carried it across other artists too. Like it's not just a meatloaf thing. Like you think about Total Eclipse of the Heart, which is probably, I dare say that's Jim Steinman's most famously written song, I would think. And even that's got yeah. the, it's definitely got the imagery of the, even the whole turnaround bright eyes and yeah. the living in a powder keg and giving off sparks. Yeah. Even the song he wrote for Air Supply, like he wrote Making Love Out of Nothing at All for Air Supply. And that's got some, the real Steinman, the gloomy, the heavens above. What's the line in that? It's like every star in your sky is taking aim at your eyes like a spotlight. Like that's yeah. a that's a very Steinman lyric, and he's definitely got the the palette of words and imagery that he draws from. It's a very it's not unique to him, but I think it's probably fair to say that of anybody drawing from this sort of palette of lyrics, that he he might even be the sort of the grandfather of this. Oh yeah, is it emo? Like it's no, not, I don't no. know if it's emo music. Like around the same time, if not maybe a year or two later, I think we had the, if it wasn't the emergence, it was the popularity of Kiss going through the roof. Certainly by 1980, Kiss were like household names, if yeah. not a couple of years before. And I think they, I mean, some of their songs are way lighter than this, but they obviously had the imagery. You know, they had the demonic stuff in the face and Gene and that kind of thing. It's the next room. It's not Worlds Away. It's the next room to Meatloaf. Yeah. And that's what I meant yeah, by definitely. glam rock really becoming a thing and a lot of that imagery being sung and, and you know, you go to the show and the stage show is kind of dark and gloomy and, I mean, you've got Iron Maiden probably early 80s, I'm making that up, don't quote me on that, and they've got the big robot Eddie coming out and he's a zombie and this sort of thing and it it, <laughs> it really was a thing, but I think Meatloaf kind of got in there a little bit early with Jim Steinman. He had he had that whole thing with his he wore the puffy pirate shirt. <laughs> yeah. He had the long flowing hair. He used to sing with the like a French rugby league referee with his handkerchief. He'd be mopping his brow with the handkerchief and yeah, it's a I know he's mentioned rock opera like eighty times in this podcast, but he has that operatic ability as well. Like he would not be out of place in his prime, Meatloaf, in his prime, on a lot of stages with different sorts of singers. Whether it's classic, whether it's yeah, he definitely have the voice to, um, the powerful enough voice to be like a, a yeah in stage music yeah. to be projecting himself with the. It's a shame. I mean, it's a shame that Neverland. There is a Bad Out of Hell musical which I haven't I haven't seen. Mm. I don't know if it'll ever be in Australia again, but I, I never get to see it. But yeah, it's the we do have one more. We're waffling on a bit about Simon, but there's still one more. We song. Do have one more. Let's get to it. It's called for crying out loud. This is the album closer. All right, that was just some of, for crying out loud, the album Closer on Bad Out of Hell. And I think much like track one, the opener, Bad Out of Hell itself, Wally, this song really represents a lot of what Jim Steinman and especially Meatloaf are about, uh, lyrically, imagery, musically. And it's an, another opera. It does jump around a little bit. It is mostly a ballad. There is the breakout bits as well and some uh, <laughs> really insightful lyrics amongst amongst some, shall we say, throwaway lyrics as well. Do you want to run through your favourite lyric of the song, Schnaz? Because I'm sure it's uh, the same as what mine is. I do. Uh, I know you belong inside my aching heart, and can't you see my faded Levi's bursting apart? 
That's very similar to your Surf's Up and so am I. Very similar to Surf's Up. I saw, uh, I was watching, uh, jumping around on YouTube videos once and there is a, I don't know if it's a documentary just about Steinman or if it's just someone talking about songwriters or whatnot and they're interviewing Steinman and he's at his piano and he was talking about this song. And I think it's one of the songs that he's actually most proud of mm. in terms of lyrically and what's going on. But he, he got to this bit and he just laughed. He said, man, that's just a boner line. And he said, <laughs> I've just put in a line about how can I talk about someone having a boner without saying someone's having a boner? And that, that was his lyric that he put uh, in, the faded Levi's bursting apart. But again, the chilly California wind, yeah. they're lying in the chilly sand. He's got that. He's still painting from the same yeah. the same palette of the, the, the things that he loves to talk about. This is a funny one. Because the start of it's so slow, I remember when I was younger, I'd sort of listen to a bit of this song at the end of the album and then just turn it off. And I don't think I'd ever really listened to the full song for years and years and years when the internet was coming. I don't know if it was mainstream or not, but back in the dial-up days when you'd go on the uh, uh, MIRC. Did you ever go on MIRC, Schnaz, the internet relay chat? And you'd have chat rooms and you'd go in and... The first one I had was... uh, What was the other one? ICQ? Yeah, I think that was my first one. On MIRC, there used to be a, a couple of rugby league channels and beyond talking rugby league to people or getting in fight with Bulldogs fans and whatnot. There was a guy, and I'm devastated that I can't remember what his user handle was because on the off chance that he hear this, I'd love to know who he was. But for some reason, we were talking about Meatloaf one time and we were talking about Battered Hell and what your favourite songs were and whatnot. And he goes, oh, for crying out loud, it's my favourite song. I'm like, what, the one, the last song on the album? He's like, yeah, this song's amazing. And I'm like, oh, man, I hate that song. And he's like, no. Nah. You've obviously never listened to it. Go and listen to it. So, of course, you jump over your listener, and he, he was right. This is my favourite song off the album. Wow. I think it's fair to say, jumping in here, we go through and do our favourites. This is my favourite song off the album. It, it's the almost the perfect Steinman song, I think. It starts off, it's got the Simon piano, it starts off slow. It's the very romantic. It has the build. It changes stream a couple of times. It gets to the point, the song's over. It definitely gets to a point when the song's over that he's, for crying out loud, you know, I love you, blah, 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 blah. The song finishes. And then it's like, no, this song isn't over. <laughs> it's got this whole, I guess, like a coda at the end that goes for, it's probably another two mm. minutes on the end of the song. And just the the lyrics that he uses, he's, he's doing this whole thing of listing the reasons why he, well, not necessarily loves the woman, but for why he loves the woman and thanks the woman and serves the woman. And it goes through this whole thing and then just finishes on the, the big, when you cry out loud, he does the thing. Close out the album. Brilliant. Couldn't finish the album in a better way. You know your meatloaf impersonation sounds a lot like Paul Stanley. <laughs> <laughs> Kiss reference there. If, anybody's never, if anyone has never seen Kiss in concert, mm-hmm. I'm going to upset a lot of Kiss fans here. I don't hate Kiss. No. I'm not a Kiss fan. I like some of the Kiss sure. songs. Weezer toured early this year. Schnaz told me I had to go. Now, when they first booked, they were only playing with Kiss. We booked tickets. Schnaz had something in Melbourne, so I got to go to Kiss on my own. Weezer opened for Kiss, had a great time watching Weezer, got to watch a Kiss show. Now, it was a hell of a show, yeah. but has Paul Stanley's voice always been that annoying? <laughs> I, annoying. I don't think it necessarily has. I think it's an age thing. It's just as he's got older and he's lost the, the power in his voice, but every year has got, yeah, whoa, Sydney, yeah. <laughs> we should say uh, congratulations to Kiss and a wonderful career there. Officially... And I'll believe it when I see it, officially broken up. And the next thing you'll be seeing them is AI holograms touring around the world. So we look forward to that. But we're not here, not here to talk about Kiss well. We're here to talk about Meatloaf. Definitely talk about Meatloaf. But uh, whoever the brains behind Kiss is, and he, is it Gene? Is he the brains? Oh, Gene, Gene and Paul, and Paul yeah. the, the brains behind it. Geniuses. If Jim Steinman's a genius, well, Kiss maybe are on the next level of genius. But well, They're business genius. Businessmen. Absolutely. Very clever. I would say they're almost businessmen and then musicians, and that's going to upset a lot of people as well, so we don't mean to do that. If you could sell a product as well as Kiss Sell T-shirts, you'd be doing very – never seen anything well, like Well, you're living it, out lunchboxes and dolls and the, the works, man. Anyway, we're here to talk about the meat, and <laughs> I think it's a great way to finish the album. I really like this song. I like the fact that they've sort of stuck true to their essential meatloaf song, which is the – slow and then the build-up and then the slow and the nice lyrics and i think it's a great way to finish very representative of of their thing that's a nice closer to bat out of hell I, I stand by that i'm glad you raised this record with me wally it's a it's a it's one that i definitely wouldn't have gone back to 
so the whole point of this podcast is to do that, and I'm I'm glad that we've done that. I don't doubt that people will listen to this and go, they hate it. Don't doubt that at all. It certainly it won't be for everyone. I don't know if it's a, if it's a you had to be there album, but it's a well, it's not because you and I weren't there. Well, we weren't there. We were we were sort of on the the cusp of there. I bet it was in the Shenazi household somewhere. I don't think I, I can confirm it wasn't actually. It wasn't. Well, there you go. As I said, I, I only really got into him through watching music on TV, essentially. It's definitely a vibe. You've got to be yeah, not necessarily in the mood, but you've got to put aside the – what's the runtime on the album? Like 40 minutes? Something like yeah. that? Put aside the time to sit down and listen. Now, the first time you might listen through and go, what's going on? This is crap. Listen to it again. Listen to the lyrics. Meatloaf's vocals on this are incredible. This is peak Meatloaf. Yeah. He, he never got to this level again. I think on Bad Out of Hell Two, which was also a big hit in Australia, that his his vocals weren't uh, they weren't got, they weren't AFL Grand Final done by that stage. But he wasn't he wasn't at the top of his powers when they came. He's still good, but not not at this level. I think that the way that he carries the song, how powerful a singer he is, and then just mixed in with Steinman's funny, clever angsty, whatever we want to call it, lyrics. I think, yeah, it's a, there's a reason why it's the biggest selling album in Australia's history. And I think, obviously, that's a different time where everybody, you had to buy an album basically to have it. Now, I mean, there's, there's a lot more popular artists now mm. in terms of streaming and whatnot. But this was the, in terms of a physical LP, the, the biggest selling album in Australia's history. So it's a, it obviously has something going for it. But yeah, if you've never heard it, it, it might not be your thing. But yeah, give it a go. and. I'm really glad that you liked it. Mm. I was sort of a bit worried about a few of my picks, Naz, that maybe you won't like them, but I was hopeful for this one, so I'm glad that you did. Let's talk about Meatloaf and something very special to you and I, and that is Rugby League. Well, sorry, sport, we'll say. So I completely forgot that in 2003, at probably the second best grand final of all time, Meatloaf performed. He was the pregame entertainment and you were there because your roosters went down to the underdogs that were Penrith, the great John Lang, Preston Campbell uh, routine, which we don't want to get into too much for you, but you were there as a nervous rooster fan and a giant Meatloaf fan. Like that's unbelievable. He wasn't past it by this stage, but he, he was still good enough that it was a, a decent performance. And it was good to see him. I, it was funny. You, you asked me before we did this album, had I ever been to a Meatloaf concert? And I said, no. And then we got talking about the, the grand final. And I said, so, so actually, do you know who else played that grand final? That I'm sure you would remember if you thought about it. It was Kelly Clarkson. Wow. Was the other act at the grand that final. That I love. She knows had a big thing for Ke- Kelly Clarkson at Still one do. stage. But Meatloaf was the, uh, I guess, the main act before the grand final. And he actually, it, it was good. It wasn't a good night. I don't have great memories of the night. It poured rain in the game. It was very very Jim Steinman. It was a stormy night. Definitely a stormy night. It was very <laughs> Jim Steinman. Sitting with my mate Carl, who's a Penrith fan, who was loving it, Penrith beating us in the rain. A decent enough performance. But then when we got thinking about it, I actually said, Schnaz, I had been to a Meatloaf yep. concert, which was the world's biggest barbecue. This is a throwback. Yeah, this is aging us. So do you remember <laughs> what year it was? Pretty sure it was 1993. Yeah, 93. Rugby league, former player, personality, yada, 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 Paul Vorton. He had something going on with, was it the, the source company? Was it Heinz or something? No, it was Tui's. I don't. Flogging Tui's beer. And they had this promotional thing of the world's biggest barbecue. And Meatloaf was the headline act. We do know that weddings, parties, and anything also played, thanks to my brother. It was at a race course in Sydney. It was a hot day, and young Wally was there to watch it. Very hot. Music aside, it was a debacle. Yes. yes. <laughs> That's fair to yes. say. It was packed. I distinctly remember that I had this thing where you had to go in and you had to buy – you couldn't just line up to buy food or drink. You had to buy Tui's dollars or whatever the hell they yeah. call them. I don't remember what they called your, them. Your coupon. So there was a queue to buy your money, and then once you bought the money, you had to go – and, of course, people in the queue for an hour – queuing up to buy drinks and get food and then you'd be there and it was like a four drink minimum and that was just it was mayhem it was so hot it was stinking hot and i i remember my brother basically bribed the guy selling beer to hey man just give us a case of beer we'll give you all the money and my brother my brother's a very ostentatious fellow he nearly got us killed in queensland when he went to a state origin game uh, yes and he was walking down Caxton Street in a blues jersey, abusing Queenslanders that were throwing beer at it, and he thought it was the greatest thing ever. 
He was walking through the crowd with a case of two-inch new held above his head, basically being hailed as the Messiah by people. Look at this guy. He's got a case of <laughs> the couple of things I remember about the day, I remember Steve Miller Band. I got very close to the stage to watch because it wasn't the big crush of people that were there for meat last. So you watched Steve Miller Band. In between the bands, I remember hiding behind a toilet block to try and get in the shade because it was so hot. Ugh. I remember basically cooking alive. And then for Meatloaf, we got pretty close to the stage and my brother got me up on his shoulders to see Meatloaf and we're probably about six or seven deep from the stage. Right. And it was uh, – I, re- I remember being very entertained by the show. I don't remember the whole set. I found it on setlist.com. I actually think that's a bit out there, the songs he said, because I don't remember doing a set that right. long. It was probably about a 45-minute set. But then at the end of the set, he sang Crocodile Rock with Fatty Morton. <laughs> I believe you can find it on YouTube, and it's probably not <laughs> worth your time. But I think if you were watching the footy show at the time, you would have uh, seen that week in, week out afterwards. But but I went di- I went digging through my photos when we were yeah. talking about it. I actually found a, a few photos from the World's Biggest Barbecue, so I might stick them on our Instagram. People can see what was going on at the World's Biggest yes, Barbecue. please follow us on the Insta. And uh, subscribe to this podcast. That would be really kind of you. And the other thing we do need to talk about just to sort of shape it all out is the AFL debacle. Do you remember approximately when that was? Was that 09 or later? I think it might have been 2011. Okay. So you did the AFL grand final. It could have been 09. I'm not sure. Not, not a huge AFL fan. For some fan, reason, but... Meatloaf speaks to our grand finals. He played the <laughs> AFL grand final. And a lot of you listening this far in will know what happened. Uh, he was just... Not with it. Super out of key in particular. Was he? Was there anything else going on Wall, or was it just a bad day for him? Was he drunk or anything, or just? There's a documentary I have watched. I can't remember which of the streamers it was on. It was definitely on one of the streamers about Meatloaf, and I don't know if he had a lot of mental problems. Or I don't think he was well. No, no, he wasn't well. Whether it was mentally well or he did have a lot of health problems in terms of his singing and whatnot. Yeah, you could just see. Also, maybe there was sound issues. You could just see. This was a really bad example of meatloaf, and it got ripped apart from pillar to post. It's one of those unfortunate things that he kind of hasn't lived lived down in some circles. In other circles, like you and I, we just find it funny, whatever. We move on. But and sadly, meatloaf is not anymore uh, with us. He, I believe, was part of the COVID death toll. Is that a yeah, I think it was. Though? It wouldn't have surprised me at all if he was an anti vaxxer I can't see Meatloaf being a big mask guy, so maybe he was a... Uh... I, think, I think it was officially what took him. If not, he definitely passed away during that. Yeah, he, he did. He definitely had other health problems. Yeah, sure, so sure, sure, sure. He gets, sure. He gets something as nasty as COVID on top of other yeah. things. That, uh... And Jim is also no longer with us, correct? Jim's no longer with us as well. He, I think he went first uh, a few years ago now, but uh, he did give us the surfs up until my lunch now, so... The great song Rock and Roll Dreams Come Th- Through, which is uh, – that's probably my favourite Jim Steinman song. Not on this album. It's actually on the album that he put out himself, uh, <laughs> Bad for Good, and it's also on Bad Out of Hell too, but that's probably my favourite uh, Jim Steinman song. He's very song. prolific, and that's something to be admired. Are we saying it's my pick next time? Is that what we're doing? It's your pick, but you want to do your favourites? you got to do your favourites for this one first. I do. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, I'm going to say – so how many do I get out of seven? Like one or two? Uh, you can pick as many as you like. What are you going to stick on your Spotify, the Eternal Schnaz Spotify Shuffle? What are we going to put in there? If I was to go with two, for example, mm-hmm. I would say Bad Out of Hell and Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. And I think that covers a lot of bases. Uh, if I was going to produce this album and tell Meatloaf and Jim Stein what was on the album and what wasn't, I honestly would be taking off, all revved up with no place to go. And shockingly to you, and I'd have to find songs to replace it, but I would honestly probably pass on Paradise by the Dashboard Light. I am surprised that you like Bad Out of Hell so much. I do, yeah. The title track. Is it musically the most complex song on the album? I think it's probably, there is a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, With the songs I'm talking negatively about, I still enjoyed them. But I could definitely live my life without them. If I wasn't going to scrap them, I would definitely be editing editing them down. Not not even so much like <laughs> shorter. Just there's things about them I don't particularly you know connect with, shall we say? This is what we do. That's fair you know, we 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 like to take apart what we listen to. So uh, very much enjoyed it. Have enjoyed talking to you, Wally, with our uh, our fancy new microphones. And we do apologise to. Uh, 
anyone who's only tuned into one of the three episodes now, well, it'll be two <laughs> because you'll see this one as well, but the Nevermind uh, Nirvana recording, Wally hadn't upped his tech yet, so it was a little bit uh, shoestring, shall we say, but still very listenable, like nothing wrong with it, but it's not as dulcet as this. So uh, we do encourage you to uh, listen to that, listen to the Beatles album as well. That's where we started. And uh, who knows where the road will take us on episode four, Wally. A friend of the show, uh, Miles Cox, has got Amazon Black Friday sales to uh, thank for the uh, hopefully better sounding audio yes. in this episode. Are we going to get it? We're going to get a hint into what what you're going to pitch, Naz, for next episode. Or? No, all I'll say is we'll do it sooner rather than later. We've both got a bit of time up our sleeves soon, so we'll, we'll do that. But uh, I'm not really sure. There's a few different ways we could go. I'm I'm sort of wanting to leave behind the big albums for the moment. But having said that, we can't get too obscure because, you know, no one will know what we're talking about. You're keeping Bruce close to your chest and I'm keeping Weezer close to my yeah, chest. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll we'll hold off on those two for a little while just because it'd be way too obvious. Although I think, to be fair, the three we've picked are not really that obvious at all in the scheme of things. No dramas there, but I think we'll leave those two artists just for a little bit longer. Uh, I'm not sure where we're going to go. I will think about it over the next 24, 48 and let you know, and you can start listening. Uh, I've got a few ideas, Lovely. though. So. Uh, thanks for listening. Album Adventures with Wally and Shanaz. We're on Instagram somewhere. You can go look at us while he's putting up funny pictures of our heads on album covers and in different sort of situations. <laughs> so that should keep you amused. If only we knew a graphic designer that listened to the show that could help us make funny pictures. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. There's there's one that comes to mind who I recently bumped into at a Foo Fighter show, but there's probably about eight others who listen to in all sincerity as well. So uh, if you want to help us out, you can always help us out. Thanks to Meatloaf. Thanks to Jim Steinman for creating such fine and interesting art. Album Adventures with Wally and Shadows back as soon as we can. Yeah.